0: Welcome to Leaders and Legends of Online Learning, a podcast dedicated to the experts. Thank you for listening. Each episode will be learning from the world's leading thinkers and practitioners in online learning and linking to ideas relevant to online teaching, working with online learners, and digital education. You can listen to the experts and check their profiles and link to some of their work on our website, www.onlinelearninglegends.com. I'm Mark Nichols, the interviewer in this episode. You'll meet Professor Asher Kanwar in this episode. Asher is President and Chief Executive Officer of the Commonwealth of Learning and is a well-known advocate for open, flexible and distance education with a global reach. Well, it's my great pleasure to be talking with Professor Asher Kanwar, President and Chief Executive Officer of the Commonwealth of Learning. Asha has written and edited a dozen books, published over 100 papers and articles and delivered numerous keynotes at prestigious international conferences. Asha has a truly international reach and influence and is a well-known advocate of learning for sustainable development. And Asha, it's a real pleasure for me to be talking with you today.
1: Thank you very much, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here. And um, thank you for inviting me to this uh, important uh, series.
0: It's it's long overdue. Thank you for participating. Asha, can we start with a brief overview of your career and publications?
1: Well, uh, Mark, I started out not as a distance educator, but as a campus teacher, and my discipline and background was in literature. But then I joined Indira Gandhi National Open University in India, where I started. That was my first contact with distance education, and we got a lot of training in distance education. Um, And um, I rose through the ranks, so to speak, you know, started out as an associate professor, became a professor, Director of the School of Humanities and then the pro-vice chancellor. Mm. And I think throughout that whole uh, progression, quality and gender were two big considerations for me, especially, you know, maintaining gender balance and ensuring that women were represented in planning committee, not just planning committees, but, you know, in intellectual forums. So I think that was very important for me to ensure that women came, you know, into intellectual forums and were given the representation that they needed at those forums. And then, of course, I had the opportunity of working at the UNESCO Regional Office for Africa in Dakar in Senegal. Mm -hmm. And that's where uh, it first struck me that the need for distance education at that time, teacher training was a big thing. Because there was a huge deficit of teachers in Africa, and how could we use distance learning to achieve the scale and quality of trained teachers that was required at that time? So being part of uh, UNESCO then meant that I was helping ministers develop policies and uh, practitioners develop capacity in offering effective distance learning. And then of course I had the opportunity, which I've been here at for 18 years at the Commonwealth of Learning. And here again, you know, I started out as an education specialist for higher education. Here again, policy was an important consideration for me and capacity. Um, And then of course uh, I became the vice president where systems development became an important area of consideration. And then now as the president, And here, you know, we had two presidents, uh, uh, Professor Raj Dhanarajan and Sir John Daniel. And Raj was very concerned about, you know, the last person in the queue. I mean, social justice and equity were big considerations for him. And Sir John had this huge international profile, you know, to bring visibility to call internationally and to advocate for distance learning internationally. I mean, he was the strongest advocate so I've tried to sort of you know learn from both of them and Mm -hmm. combine these two things which I think really Paul needs you know to give full attention to the most unreached people in the commonwealth and at the same time to try and create this visibility and advocacy for distance learning globally so I think those two were great masters for me
0: Mm, Fantastic. And I think you've combined the the strengths and the uh, advocacy of both very, very well. Uh, Asha, can we talk about some of the ideas and themes your work has provided, particularly those that you sense are still pertinent today?
1: I had some publications, you know, throughout my career, and these are essentially in uh, gender and distance learning. In fact, one of my books was Speaking for Ourselves, you know, Women and Distance Learning and so on. Mm. Uh, Women's leadership, quality, And I think these ideas are still there and we need them uh, because I think one of the things this pandemic has highlighted is further exacerbated inequalities, especially Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. terms of gender. And when Ebola happened in Sierra Leone and the schools reopened after the whole crisis was over, it was the girls who didn't come back. I mean, they were the hardest hit. So we know that the same thing, you know, UNESCO is saying 11 million girls are likely to drop out of the school system after this pandemic. So we are already trying to focus on in sub-Saharan Africa on open schools for girls. So that's one level of intervention which we've already started, you know, trying to sort of add. And the second is advocacy within communities. Yeah. Because we believe that, you know, empowered mothers and empowered communities will bring the girls back to school. Otherwise, you can have as many schools, the girls will not come. So you've got to first work with the mothers and with the communities to ensure that, you know, they understand the value of education for their girls and send them back. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing which is uh, still coming through. The other thing, which, again, is quality. And... uh, we had done a book you know called uh, Professor Call and I on where we equated quality as a culture of quality being equal to a culture of care
0: yeah.
1: and if you care for the learner, then automatically you know then you begin to start thinking of putting systems in place which will really you know create the quality that you need within institutions. Hmm. So I think hmm. that culture of care has become more important than ever before in, during the pandemic because people are having all kinds of mental issues and you know issues of anxieties, well-being and so on. So I think that culture of care becomes more important today than ever before. And the third, of course, is this uh, women's leadership. Uh, we need more women leaders out there. You know that there's a whole lot of violence against women which has surfaced during the pandemic. So, how are women empowered to actually talk about it mm. and ensure that you know this doesn't keep getting you know under the carpet and yeah. uh, continues? so we set up uh, the commonwealth wise this is a platform mm. yeah. uh, which we've set up at call, and here we've linked you know uh, eminent women professionals in the remotest parts of the Commonwealth. And we are doing these six-month mentorship programs for those women and girls. Uh, We've started the second cohort. And it's really having an impact on the mentors and the mentees. Mm. The mentees are able to talk about what they are suffering. The mentors are ready to learn from them, you know, because there are certain things which we can learn from them that how they're sort of managing with so little, you know, that sense of entitlement which we come with, it actually disrupts it, this whole, you know, mentorship program. And in some remote areas, you know, women don't even have access to their own smartphone. They have to borrow it or they have to sit in clusters with other girls or with a partner organization Mm -hmm. to be able to, you know, talk to the mentor. But I think it's having a huge impact. We've already... In the last, this is not even gone on for a year, and already uh, one state in India has come up with a India chapter of this Commonwealth Wise Women, and they've started a mentorship program, you know, which is linked to our website. And the Minister of Education in Guyana is going to start another one for the Caribbean through her ministry. So I think people are beginning to realize the benefit of this. But I think women's leadership is again an area where I think we will be pushing forward for more women leaders to be empowered to make a difference.
0: Mm, Fantastic. So that that sounds like a really effective educational program. And, of course, uh, Empowering Women has also been shown to uh, increase economic activity in remote areas as well. So, Asha, all of that work that you've mentioned, that's all done online through mobile phones, uh, through the internet?
1: Yes, this is all through mobile phones, even through basic phones. Some people, you know, uh, get in touch through... uh, Emails in some cases where the women are educated and have access to email. WhatsApp messaging has been very, very effective, in fact. And I've also mentored some, you know, two girls in Pakistan and I speak the language. So, you know, it's even nicer mm, when you speak mm. in the local languages.
0: Excellent. sure it's now 2021. We've undergone a huge uh, time of disruption through the COVID-19 pandemic internationally. Um, can you What can you tell us about online learning and education at the present time? You've mentioned uh, Empowering Women and the mentoring program. What other initiatives is perhaps uh, Cole, or what else have you noticed around the world where online learning is making a genuine difference?
1: You know, the biggest thing that the pandemic has done is that the advocacy, which it would have taken us 10 years, has happened almost in 10 days and mm. everybody has pivoted mm. to distance and online mode. But uh, that said, it's raised two very big issues you know one is the issue of quality and the second is the issue of equity so uh, at the commonwealth of learning you know we've been trying to do whatever we can to ensure that you know neither of them becomes a casualty to this whole scramble for online provision because this is going to continue for some time so let me just uh, talk about quality that uh, when the pandemic started we developed a lot of guidelines and instruments Based on our experience in distance learning. You know, in distance learning, we are very systematic in how we plan and implement and develop systems for good provision, you know, where delivery, learner support, everything is so important.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, yeah.
1: So we developed guidelines for, uh, uh, for ministers, for policymakers, for teachers, uh, for institutions. So for both policymakers and practitioners, we developed guidelines and uh, toolkits. We also built the capacity of teachers, especially because teachers were the ones who felt that, you know, they couldn't, uh, they weren't trained in ICT integration. This was done, of course, we couldn't do it face to face. It was done through MOOCs. And uh, we've done several of these, you know, in uh, with Athabasca University here in Canada yeah. on ICT integration. We've done... Uh, OER, how to use OER uh, in Trinidad and Tobago with the Ministry of Education, you know, 50% of all teachers in the country were trained because the ministry got involved. And we offered a, a MOOC on uh, using OER for effective teaching and learning. Yeah. And then uh, cyber security is another issue. So we've also offered a MOOC on that uh, for teachers. Plus, Another constituency which it often gets overlooked is persons with disabilities.
0: Yes, yes.
1: So in collaboration with the Open University UK, we've developed a program for teachers on how to deal and how to teach persons with disabilities. And we're doing several things uh, in that regard also um, on assessing uh, the needs for persons with disabilities and the kind of assistive technologies which are needed. Uh, and trying to train teachers. And we've done this in Mauritius with uh, mm. the Global Rainbow Foundation. The third is uh, uh, people, because they moved so quickly, you know, they didn't have good online content. Yeah. And we had done OER for COVID. Uh, this was a project with the Otago Polytechnics OER Foundation.
0: Yes, yeah, Wayne McIntosh.
1: With Wayne. And uh, 89 countries joined this platform. They did a survey. And one of the findings of the survey was that, you know, people were very tired of being, you know, having general repositories pushed at them. Mm. They wanted curated content aligned to the curriculum. Yeah. So what we did was because, you know, in the Pacific, you know that uh, uh, there is a constraint of bandwidth in terms of costs and availability. So we've developed a video on demand service of curated videos, which are OER for STEM subjects and Mm. aligned to the curriculum of Nauru, Fiji and Samoa. And Tonga has just joined us for that. So more than 800 videos have been put in place and uh, they can access them, you know, without any kind of bandwidth constraint. Plus, we also set up, uh, at the beginning almost when the pandemic started, a call for partnerships. It's called Open Door. It's an international partnership with more than 60 partners have joined, including the World Bank, including UNESCO, including MIT, including Open Universities, including the Open Poly from New Zealand. (laughs) And all the partners have contributed more than 200 online courses.
0: Mm, fantastic. and
1: anybody can use them now you know so this whole move towards sharing has become very uh, important I think as we go forward so that's as far as quality content is concerned and equity so what have we done about that we know that there's a huge digital divide in the commonwealth especially in the pacific mm, yes in africa um, you know in the four regions of the commonwealth I think the caribbean is probably the best but the rest are pretty constrained Mm. Uh, including some areas in Asia. So because the poor children get left behind and because people in remote areas get left behind, we've tried to look for technology solutions.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, one is we've developed Aptus, which is a device which we've upgraded, which is like a small server. And you can put you know Moodle courses on that. You can put videos, thousands of videos on that. It has a wireless router and a, a solar charger. Mm, and if mm. the teacher has that server, it costs about $150. And uh, 20 children have uh, uh, mobile devices. They can you know, download content from this server. Yeah. So even if you're sitting on the beach or under a tree, as happened in the case you know, in Fiji and in Kiribati, for example, in an atoll, uh, the students were much more motivated because they hadn't been given videos for instruction. It was mostly, you know, chalk and talk and um, textbook-related things. So now that they were getting all these other, you know, media-rich content, mm, they were much mm. more motivated. And it Fantastic. also made them happy to learn. The other was uh, Mobi MOOCs, you know. MOOCs are all, you know, presuppose high levels of connectivity. Yeah. But if we have to reach remote farmers, because we have a lifelong Learning for Farmers project in Africa, Asia, and the Caribbean. How do we reach them? They just have basic mobile phones. They don't even have smartphones. So we've created this kind of computer-mobile interface called mobibooks, where thousands of farmers have been reached during the pandemic, where they've learned about various things, including financial literacy. Mm -hmm. Uh, various kind of, you know, agricultural practices and so on. Uh, And the learning has continued uh, even during this. And that actually has generated, you know, assets and uh, resulted in better productivity for the farmers. The other is that we've also been targeting particular communities. One of the problems in the Commonwealth is, you know, in certain countries, they are still, the laws are there but people are still marrying girls off, you know, at 14 or 15.
0: Yes, yeah.
1: Even if though, though the law is that they cannot marry girls off before 18, but they do. Hmm. And so we've targeted five such countries where this is most prevalent, uh, you know, Bangladesh, India, Pakistan, Tanzania and Mozambique, where we've skilled girls for livelihoods. And, you know, they've received uh, training in life skills, in technical skills, whatever they may be, like, for example, computer repairs, mobile repairs and financial literacy. So, you know, this kind of package and then linking them to potential uh, employers or employers associations or opportunities for getting uh, finance you know, financial institutions so that they can get some seed money to start their own little Mm. business. That has also helped. Mm. So I think the third thing which we've learned from this whole thing is that a targeted approach to particular communities is very important. Mm. Things will not happen in a generalized way. So you have to really reach those. And I think one more thing which I must say, which we were very successful in the last one year was this partnership with Coursera. This is the called Coursera Partnership for Workforce Recovery. And they gave us 150,000 free licenses, which we offered to countries, um, to people in all the Commonwealth countries. In fact, last week, we had the convocation for the Pacific,
0: Mm, uh,
1: where the graduates received uh, their certificates from the head of Coursera, you know, Jeff. Magion Kalda and myself. And previously we've held two convocations, one for the Caribbean and one for Africa, where even the ministers of education joined us. But I think this has been a life-changing experience for many people because they've got certificates And some people have got multiple certificates from some of the top universities in the world. Mm, So this workforce recovery initiative has been very successful, especially during this time, when you know that more people were sitting at home and had all the time for self-directed learning. So they were able to successfully complete this. So we're very proud of this particular intervention
0: that we were able to make. Yeah, excellent! It's really exciting to hear online learning making such a difference, uh, particularly in the two areas you mentioned of quality and equity. I mean, there's a clear theme running through those stories. It's, uh, it's really exciting to hear that Commonwealth of Learning is following that stream and making such a difference. Asha, um, what research do you think we most need to do at the moment for online learning? What, what research would you most like to see done now?
1: You know, one of the things which is, again, a problem uh, going forward uh, is this uh, climate change Mm. and environmental conservation. So uh, we know that that is going to be also the cause of many disasters. The pandemic may pass, but, you know, climate-related disasters are happening all over the Pacific, the Caribbean, Mm. everywhere. Yeah. So uh, how can we think about education and how education can contribute? And uh, we know that indirectly, you know, if you build more buildings, you use more cement and steel, we are contributing to carbon emissions. Mm. So what opportunity does online learning provide to us to, you know, mitigate some of that? And you may be aware that in the UK, UK Open University has a framework called SUSTEACH. And they did a study called, you know, to look at the carbon footprint of their, you know, online distance students, and they found that it's way below that of campus students. Mm, yeah, yeah. So we used the same framework in Botswana because we wanted to see how that works out in developing countries. And we did a kind of study which compared the, you know, the carbon emissions of a campus student and a distance learning student, and we found that it was one third.
0: One third, yeah.
1: In comparison, yeah. But you know that is only one study, and I, these are the only two studies I'm aware of: the UK and uh, this thing. So this is one area of research mm. Mm. where more distance learning and online providers can actually try to look at you know the impact that uh, they are having on either reducing or increasing the carbon footprint of the students. Yeah, this would be something interesting. Uh, The second would be that what is the social return on investment of uh, distance learning? Cole has done a few studies Mm. and we found that, you know, the social return on investment is very high, but we need more of those studies. Uh, The other is on the cost effectiveness and learning outcomes of OER.
0: Yes, yeah.
1: There are some studies, but we need more of those because that becomes a very useful advocacy tool. Mm. Because, you Mm. know, when you talk to ministers, et cetera, they want to say, okay, then how much does it cost? So if you've got good studies to talk to them about, then it really sort of helps advance and make the case for OER. And of course, uh, this is a perennial problem that, you know, distance education is not the same. I mean, we have concluded many times that there's no significant difference between distance and campus based education in terms of you know efficiencies so yeah. i think we still need to do a little bit more work especially research on and putting together the innovations mm. that people have come up with you know innovations in assessments for instance because the biggest casualty was also you know we can't hold proctored exams mm. so now what do we do and lots of people have come up with innovations in assessments so yes. Uh, what can we learn from those and how do we sort of make a case for you know more authentic assessments in the future
0: yeah it sounds like there's plenty of opportunity there for um, distance online open education to uh, demonstrate how much things have changed over the last few years i I suspect when many people hear the term distance education they do think of the classic days of uh, correspondence um, materials being sent out but of course practice is so different today
1: but you know it's very interesting mark because in the old days, you know, when distance education started—correspondence, open distance learning—we were trying to legitimize ourselves and make, build mm. our credibility mm. by copying the campus institutions.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: We wanted to be them. Mm. Mm. And now look at the way the shoe is on the other foot. Now they want to be like us. <laughs> Absolutely,
0: yeah. And the, the sorts of advocacy you're talking about earlier, of course, just just couldn't be done if you required non-campus infrastructure. Uh, So there's some very real needs now that um, open distance online education can meet. Asha, uh, it's long overdue me talking with you. You are indeed a a leader and legend of online learning. Can you tell me about two others, um, one whose work or perspective is significantly influencing you perhaps now and one who you think otherwise has an important perspective to share?
1: You know, like I already shared in the beginning that the two people who really had as former presidents of call, Professor Raj Rajan Mm. and Sir John Daniel. And in a previous life, it was Professor Abdul Khan, who was my vice chancellor at the Indira Gandhi National Open University and Professor Ram Takwale, who were excellent you know, leaders that we could learn from. So that is uh, what we've learned and uh, evolved and we are still trying to evolve, you know, learning from them <laughs> and they're mm-hmm. great examples. Uh, but for the ones who, uh, if you're looking for two people that you would like to talk to who are also leaders, uh, and they're within my own organization. Uh, in fact, I can even mention three of them. You know, One is uh, Dr. Sanjay Mishra, who keeps working and you know keeping abreast of distance learning. He's got a kind of holistic approach and a systems thinking about distance education. So maybe uh, he could be one. The second could be uh, my colleague, Francis Ferreira,
0: Yes, Francesca. Frances, yes,
1: you know she's done fantastic work as the head of NAMCOL in a previous mm, life mm. for open schooling, and she's another one you know who's a leader in distance education who's doing a lot for women and girls now, and uh, so that's important. And then I have Dr. Tony Mays, who came from a teacher education background in South Africa, is now working in open schooling for us. And he's another fantastic leader, um, you know, with my, I'm very lucky to have these colleagues. So maybe those three, if you were thinking of, you know, talking to other people.
0: Asha, thank you. It's been a fantastic conversation. I've learned so much. It's really, really good to learn more about what the Commonwealth of Learning is up to, particularly in those areas of quality and equity. Uh, Thank you so much for your time. And thank you for being a leader and legend of online learning.
1: Thank you for having me, Mark. Be well.
0: You can learn more about Asha and her work from our website. That concludes this episode. Be sure to go to our website, www.onlinelearninglegends.com to follow up on this episode's guest. You'll also find links to others whose ideas continue to inspire and teach online learning professionals. And you can subscribe to future interviews. If you know of a leader or legend we've not yet talked to, please do drop us a line at onlinelearninglegends at gmail.com.